Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to begin reading this morning in verse 12, and we'll read through this next section, the sixth bowl of the wrath of God as we continue in our study of the Revelation. And as you're turning there, I just want to say what a blessing it is to be with you, to sing the praises of God with you, to hear your voices singing the praises of God, but also to hear all of the little voices, all of those little voices who are still learning how to praise the Lord. It is such a blessing that God has given us so many families with young children and we just want you to know, I want you to know that we are so thankful that you are here among us, worshiping with us. Revelation chapter 16, and there are seven bowls in this particular series of seven. We are on the sixth bowl, and John tells us about this in verse 12. So Revelation 16, starting in verse 12, just follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we go any further in our study of it. Father, I do thank you for this time of worship and gathering of your people for the purpose of singing your praises, remembering your love for us through Christ, and to be nourished and guided and edified by your word. And I pray as we study this text together, Father, that you would give us understanding, that you would open our eyes to see and our minds to understand and our hearts to receive your truth and to be prepared to respond to it with faithfulness. I pray that you would strengthen me for the task of proclaiming it and that you would, be, you would see fit to move among us, to bring conviction of sin where necessary, to bring a comfort where necessary, but to accomplish your purpose in the lives of your people for your sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In my study this week, I came across a list of very memorable and moving quotes on the subject of war. One, the first one comes from Aeschylus, an ancient Greek playwright who said, in war, truth is the first casualty. Plato, another ancient Greek, he was a philosopher, he said, only the dead have seen the end of war. Coming a little closer to our own day, G.K. Chesterton, he writes, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. It's a powerful quote. 
And taking that same sentiment and putting it into a story, J.R.R. Tolkien in The Two Towers writes this from one of his characters, War must be. While we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all, But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. You know, whether these things come from books or from movies or from the nightly news, when we think of war, ideas and images just jump into our minds, even by the sheer mention of the word war. To our modern minds... Thinking of war is to think of soldiers drawn up in teams, covered in camo, armed with sophisticated weapons, and traveling in armored vehicles. But according to God's word, within the context of scripture, there is another side to war that engulfs us every single day, though we cannot see it with our eyes. The Christian life is warfare, spiritual warfare. And it's not just something that happens occasionally when bad things happen in the world. The scriptures would help us to understand that every day of the Christian life, we live engaged in this spiritual battle. Every day we battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Every day we wrestle against the spiritually motivated world that wants to cancel us and accuse us and condemn us and silence us. Every day we grapple with our own sin and the temptations that aim to take hold of our lives and take us off the path of faithfulness. Every day we must resist the devil who we are told is a roaring lion seeking to devour us. This is every day in the life of believers. This spiritual warfare is an everyday warfare. And we are called to engage it like faithful soldiers. And we don't engage it in the same we- with the same weapons that we might engage in an earthly warfare. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that though we, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are imbued with divine power to destroy strongholds. We, this is the aim of our warfare, we destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. Now, Paul would help us to understand that much of the warfare that we engage in on a daily basis as believers happens between our ears, it happens in our minds, and it happens in our hearts. That's the spiritual battle that we face. And in our passage this morning, John is giving us a vision of warfare. Only this is a war that is to take place at the end of all things. John gives us this picture of the mustering of all of the world's dark forces in preparation for the final battle at the end of the age. God's judgment, and this is what we're studying, we're studying the judgment of God, and God's judgment clears a path for the forces of the kings from the east to come. But these kings are being instigated, they're being motivated, they're being spurred on by the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. They're the ones instigating the fight. And then in the midst of this, as God shows us this picture of war beginning to unfold, then there's this parenthetical explanation from Jesus, behold, I am coming like a thief. 
So even as the warfare to end all wars is uh, on its way, Jesus reminds us in the very midst of it that he is coming and therefore we must stay awake and be ready for his return at any moment. Now those are the big ideas that we see in this passage and there is so much for us to learn as we study this book together and especially just these few verses, but the ultimate theme of the sixth bowl of God's wrath is that God is making way for war the final war. So let's look at this. Look at verse 12 with me. And if you're visiting, if you're new, what what I'd like to do is we read the text of Scripture. I try to explain where we're going, and then we're just going to go back and we're going to look at it verse by verse to try to understand it in its context. So if you have a Bible, keep your Bible open. Let's read verse 12 again. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, the actions of this angel are quite simple. He comes out and he pours out his bowl upon the river, the great river Euphrates. We've already seen bowls poured out into the sea, into the earth, right? We've seen the fresh water and the salt water. We've seen all of these things happen. Well, this one is poured specifically on one particular river. At least that's the way it reads. And the result is that this great river dries up. And in drying up, the river now allows for the armies of the kings from the east to cross over the dry riverbed. And the the whole context tells us that they are are coming across that riverbed because they're assembling for war on the great day of the Lord. And here's the question that should come to our minds because we understand that this whole section is about judgment. How does God pouring out a bowl of his wrath upon a river, how does that affect judgment? What is going on here? And as we've been studying the Revelation, we've seen that when we come to a place where we don't really understand what's going on, it's good for us to look into Israel's past to see if there's a connection. Is there some story that John is drawing from that would help us to understand the the symbolic nature of this vision? And in fact, there are some. I mean, there are at least two instances in Israel's past where God chose to dry up the waters in order to protect his people. The first one is, quite honestly, it's the, the one we probably your minds go to first. It's the, the crossing of the Red Sea. When God delivered his people from Egypt, from their bondage and, and from their slavery, and in order to free them completely and get them away from the army of Pharaoh, God parted the waters And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Here's what it says. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And there's another passage that might come to your mind. A second time when God dried up the waters. He did this when the children of Israel in the book of Joshua were finally making their way into the promised land. And they had to cross the Jordan River near the city of Jericho. You might remember this. They get there and the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the priests go into the water. And the Bible says that as soon as their feet hit the water, the, 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 the flow of the river stopped. And the water began to pile up. And here's what it says in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 17. The priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. They're standing in the middle of the river. 
on dry ground. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So these are pictures, these are images, these are instances from the history of Israel, from the life of Israel, where God did something amazing to dry up the waters in order to deliver his people. It shows us that God has complete control over his creation to do whatever he chooses to accomplish his purpose. And in both cases, God suspended the natural flow of these two bodies of water in order to allow his people to travel from one place to another on dry ground. So there's some context, right? We've seen this before, but still, how does, how does the king from the east coming across the Euphrates, how does that symbolize judgment, and how does that in some way give us confidence that God's people are going to be rescued? Because that's the context of those passages. And there's actually another passage that talks about this very specifically. There's a passage where God dries up the river Euphrates, and he does this in order to bring a pagan army against the enemies of Israel. Some of you know this. Some of you have never heard this before. But in Isaiah chapter 11, God promises that he is going to dry up the river Euphrates to allow King Cyrus to come from Assyria, and he's going to bring his army against the Babylonians. And the reason that was important at that time is because Israel was in captivity to the Babylonians. And God is going to raise up a pagan army to come against another pagan army in order to protect and defend his people. And that prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah 44. And as he has done many times as we've studied through the Revelation, John is taking that Old Testament story from the past and he's bringing it forward in a symbolic way to describe something that God is going to do in the future. I don't believe that the literal river Euphrates is going to dry up and that there's going to be a nation east of Jerusalem that is going to um, come in and attack some future reinstated Babylon. I don't think that's going to happen because Scripture says it's not going to happen. Babylon has been destroyed, and God says it will never be raised again. I think this is a symbolic understanding of what's going to happen in the end. In John's vision, now remember this, we've been talking about this for weeks. In John's vision, Babylon does not represent an actual nation. Babylon represents the wicked world system that works to persecute the church. And so when he says that something's going to happen to Babylon, he's talking about the, the system of this world that stands against the people of God in the same fashion that they did in the Old Testament. And in his judgment, God is going to make a way for the other nations of the world to stand against Babylon, that wicked world system, in order to free the people of God. In Israel's past, you can think about it this way, in Israel's past, God raised up the enemies of their enemy to bring judgment on those who persecuted his people. And in the future, John tells us in this vision that God is going to raise up the enemies of our enemies in order to protect us in some strange way. That's the picture. John is using Babylon and the Euphrates River as a symbolic prophecy of the battle between the church and the unbelieving world. Now, you may have heard this taught differently. I'm sure you have. But I do not believe that this is telling us that there's going to be one nation under God fighting against some atheistic world power. It's about all the people caught up in the demonic world system and the judgment that will come against them at the end of the age. It's a picture of that. And John describes it as a war. 
In the first five bowls, we learned that God turned creation against the wicked inhabitants of the world. And here in the sixth bowl, God will turn the world against itself in order to bring judgment on unbelievers and in order to protect and to redeem his chosen people. You may think about that differently, and that's fine. Whatever way you see this, whatever way you interpret this, what's happening in the sixth bowl is that God is making way for war. Whether that's a symbolic war or literal in your interpretation. But let's think about this before we move on to the next point. Is there a more disastrous event in human affairs than war? Is there a more hellish time on earth than a time of war? There's nothing pleasant about war, even when the cause of war is just. War is a monstrous and hellish and awful thing. And Scripture tells us that when war occurs, at some level, God has removed his hand of protection, allowing humanity to engage in it. And that is a form of judgment. And we're seeing war right now. We talk all, about, all day about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and all the different forces that are moving. And if you've hit, read any of the stories that are being brought out of the battlefield about what's actually taking place on the ground and the torture and the horrific things that are taking place on both sides of that battle, it just shows you how demonic war actually looks. The sixth bowl shows that war is coming, but it doesn't tell us how it's going to end. Actually, in the chapters that follow, we'll see a better picture of how it ends. But it does tell us that the war is going to be instigated by the dragon. So we've seen God making way for war. Now let's look at Satan's forces being assembled. Look at verse 13. John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now let me remind you of one of the themes of this book. One of the themes that we've seen over and over is the idea that what Satan wants to do is he wants to parody or he wants to counterfeit the one true God as God exists in a trinity. Uh, where Satan takes the place of God the Father, he's referred to as the dragon. And then the dragon has a counterfeit son who's referred to as the beast, and he sets himself in the place of Christ. And then the false prophet rounds out the demonic trinity, the counterfeit trinity, and he wants to take the place of the Holy Spirit. And you see that throughout the Revelation. I've pointed it out before, but in case you haven't been here for that, I wanted to just make sure you saw it. And together, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, this demonic counterfeit parody of a trinity, they come together and they oppose the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the people of God, and they do so with words. The image of the dragon's mouth and the beast's mouth and the false prophet's mouth being open to give way to demonic spirits, that's an indication that they're going to use words, ideas, speech, in order to deceive the nations. The fact that these things happen, and the fact that we've already seen this before in the Revelation, should be some indication of what this is going to look like. John told us in, in Revelation chapter 12, when he first introduced us to the dragon, he said this in chapter 12, verse 15, he said that the serpent poured out water 
like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now we studied that, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And the picture there is not of a a literal dragon walking out onto the earth and opening its mouth and then flood of waters coming out. The picture is symbolic to suggest that what Satan is going to do is try to attack the woman, which is a reference to the church. You know, attack the woman with what comes out of its mouth, words and speech. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Satan is a liar, and Jesus tells us he's been a liar since the very beginning. And he says that in the same passage where he describes that the, the, the ancient serpent is Satan himself. Satan's method of taking our thoughts and our minds and steering them away from the truth is to do so with lies and deception and slander. He is a deceiver. And according to this, he wants to sweep the church away with a flood of false teaching, a flood of worldly ideologies, ideas that don't come from God, ideas that confront the Word of God, that are in opposition to the Word of God. And so I want you to just think for a moment about some of those godless ideologies that are being promoted in the news and on your Facebook feed and everywhere else. Over the last decade or more, Our country has just been inundated with godless ideologies. Those things have crept into our schools and pretty much everywhere. The Marxist politics of oppression and revolution have swept through the country. And you have individuals, especially young people on college campuses that don't even know what Marxism really truly stands for, and yet they call themselves Marxist or communist. The ideology of the LGBTQ plus revolution along with critical theory and all of its offshoots. These things have seeped into everything in our culture, all in the name of equality and inclusion. And they say these things with a smile. Gender theory, which we've talked about before. We've, we've taught on all of these things, by the way. Gender theory has caused many to reject one of the most basic truths that, are written, that is written out on the very first pages of Scripture, that God made us male and female, full stop. There's no gender spectrum. These ideas have captivated our culture, and they have even crept into the church, as many of you know. But their aim is to undermine God's truth. Not to explain God's truth, but to undermine God's truth. And to attack Christ as well as to attack his people. By now, I'm sure that you have probably heard of the idea of white privilege, right? This is one of those offshoots of critical theory. This is an academic concept that has become mainstream through uh, mainstream thought in recent years. It claims that white people, light-skinned people, have an unfair advantage over non-whites within society because they make up the dominant group within a society, within American culture. White people wield um, an oversized power and an oversized privilege that serves to oppress non-white people. Certainly you've heard of this. If you haven't, I'd be glad to talk to you about it a little more over coffee or something like that. Now, to critical social justice, the answer to the injustice of white privilege is that society must learn to oppose whiteness, even white people, right? We have to learn to oppose this according to their theories. But critical 
theory doesn't stop there. Because the dominant religion in America is Christianity, it also follows in their way of thinking that Christians have a form of power and privilege in this society. And it's being written about as well. It's called Christian privilege. To promote social justice in America, according to these theories, one has to oppose not only white privilege, but also Christian privilege, which means that Christianity is the problem and it must be opposed. These are ideas, these are worldly ideologies that follow down the path and in the end they are standing opposed to the God of Scripture and to the people of God who hold to those Scriptures. And according to these social justice voices, which are croaking all over the country today, we're the problem. And I use the word croaking there because that's the imagery we see here. John says these voices that are going to come out of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet are like frogs. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? Frogs. Why frogs? What's What's the thing there? Frogs are generally associated, apart from little boys who like to play with frogs and put them in their pockets, uh, frogs are generally associated with dirty, slimy, little ugly things, right? I mean, maybe you have some frogs at home and that's just your thing. I don't know. But we, we generally understand that frogs are not desirable. I mean, otherwise, where does the story of a princess kissing a frog come from? If, if we don't understand by nature that these are ugly, greasy little things. I mean, if it's so easy to kiss a frog, then every princess should be doing it. But it's not because we generally don't think about frogs as being very enticing and desirable creatures. Now, I practically grew up in the swamps of northeastern Louisiana. And I have both seen and hunted my fair share of little frogs. Um, they're, they're supposed to be great for a habitat. And I know that is true. If you've got a small pond and you have two really fruitful frogs, a male and a female frog, before long the entire pond is going to be a reservoir filled with little frogs. And what happens in that particular case is that all those little frogs become food for everything else. And so the the birds and the snakes and the fish and the alligators will flood into that place to feast on the jumpy little critters. And, And I think that's part of the image here. Part of the image is that frogs have a tendency to attract other more aggressive and feared creatures. But there is more to the symbol. In Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 10, God declares that frogs are unclean. They're unclean animals. Frogs were used in the plagues in Egypt. You probably remember that. They were used in the plagues in Egypt as a symbol of judgment and specifically as a symbol of judgment against one of the Egyptian pagan gods, the goddess Hect, who was represented by a frog. She was a pagan goddess of resurrection, and part of the reason that John uses frogs here may be to point to the fact that behind the false gods that are worshipped in the world, behind the false ideologies and the anti-Christian ideas that are being spoken of, there are actual demonic influence behind those things. Maybe that's what he's trying to get across. It's all kinds of different reasons why this might be the case. But within the vision, it's easy to see that the frogs are the offspring of the demonic trinity. They come from them. They represent something of a second generation of unclean spirits who use their mouths, their speech, to incite violence against the church. We can just use different New Testament language. They're false prophets. They're false prophets. 
They instigate anger and hatred against Christians by lying and attacking us with lies. Twisting the word of God to their own ends. They misrepresent the truth. They even perform signs to stir the world up against the church. And their unclean voices, according to this vision, will be instrumental in assembling the kings of the whole world for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. John's picture here is of a universal battle. The kings of the whole world will gather. The whole inhabited world is going to take part in this battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And I know I've said that phrase multiple times, and I've said it like that for a reason. That phrase is going to show up again and again as we continue to study. We're going to see it in Revelation 19, verse 19, in Revelation 20, verse 8, where the dragon and the beast are gathering the kings of the earth to fight against Christ and his people. And right as they are assembled to fight, that's when Christ returns on that white war horse that we can't wait to study about. And what that means is this sixth bowl of wrath marks the end of the world. It marks the war at the end of the world that's going to usher in the final judgment of God. And and what John is giving us is just a little thumbnail sketch of that. And then in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to study it in more of its fullness. The nations of this world, according to this, are deceived by Satan into thinking that they are attacking the church. They're going to destroy the people of God. And what happens is that God has actually gathered them together and they will meet their judgment. They will meet the judgment of God there because when they are assembled, that's when Christ returns. There's a foreshadowing of what is coming. But Christ actually tells us something in this little vision about his return. So we've looked at God making way for war. We've seen Satan's demonic influence. Now let's look at the coming of Christ. Behold, he comes. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they, that is the kings of the whole world, assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. I've made mention of this before. I don't have a problem nerding out on this with you, but I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's work. Some of you are as well, so I'm amongst friends, I hope. There's a moment in uh, the movie, The Two Towers, where you have a similar scene as what you see here. You have the people of Rohan, the the people of Middle-earth are are under attack, and they're under attack from the orcs that have come from Isengard and some who have come from Baradur. So they've got enemies coming from both sides, and they're outnumbered. They have nothing to do, and so they they have to run to this, this hiding place, this place that is known as Helm's Deep. For some of you, that image, you know, can flash into your mind. Well, as they are getting ready to go to Helm's Deep to hide away in this this fortress, basically, Gandalf turns to Aragorn and he says this. He says, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. How many of y'all remember that? Okay, all right, you're with me, good. Now later in the story, as they've all made their way to Helm's Deep and the the forces are amassed against them, they're coming through the walls and all this is happening, the men that are left are just absolutely bone-weary. I mean, they've been fighting all night. They've been outnumbered from the beginning. And they had really, at this point, no hope of overcoming the Mordor's assault. They had really no hope of matching the ferocity of their fight, the fighting force that was outside the gates. 
And so what they decided to do in that very last moment is they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go out like men. You remember this? They're in, they're in Helm's Deep. They're, they're there. And they said, let's just get on our horses and let's ride out and let's face the enemy head on. And that's exactly what they do. They muster the remaining soldiers. They, they hop onto the horses of Rohan and they charge out of the castle with the lust of battle in their hearts. And as they emerge and as they begin to fight, as they begin to fight against the enemy and the enemy completely surrounds them, something happens the light begins to creep over the horizon. And with it, that memory of what Gandalf had said to Aragorn, look look for me at first light on the fifth day, look to the east. And when it happens, and the light comes over, and then all of a sudden they see the white rider standing at the top of the hill. And he's not alone. He's got a whole battalion of warriors by his side. Gandalf finally comes, and within seconds... The, the men of Rohan that are just absolutely surrounded and outnumbered, within seconds, the battle is won. Now, that's a beautiful picture. In Tolkien's story there, the hope of men rested in the return of Gandalf, the white rider. And in our story as Christians, the hope of believers rests in the return of Christ. As the world's forces assemble to attack the church, Jesus reminds us that he is coming, and he is coming like a thief. Why a thief? Imagine going on a vacation, and then coming home from that vacation. You're all tan, and there's still sand in your bags, or wherever. you. Maybe you went somewhere other than the beach. I don't know why you would, but maybe you did. And, and I'm just thinking that way because we've been surrounded by ice all week, right? And you come home from your vacation and you walk in the house and you realize very quickly that someone has broken into your home and they've stolen all of your valuable possessions. Now, do you think that the next time you leave the house you're going to do things a little differently than you did before? Absolutely. Of course you will. Because you know what thieves do. Thieves come when you don't expect them. And Jesus says, I'm going to come, but don't be surprised when I return. Be awake. I'm going to come, and and so many others, like he said in Matthew 24, so many others, it's going to be like a thief has just come in, and they're not prepared, but you must be prepared. You must stay awake. And the idea of keeping our clothes on is not that, I mean, it's also symbolic. Let's be prepared in every way we need to be prepared. Clothed in the right way. Be ready at all times. And the reason we should be ready at all times, and I believe this 100% applies to us right now, is that I don't think there's anything that needs to be fulfilled before Christ returns. His, His return could be in the next moment, in the next breath. We're not waiting on something to happen before he comes. That's what it means when we say that his return is imminent at any moment. He could come like a thief right now. So be prepared Until he comes, he has given us marching orders. Our task is to bear witness to Jesus and his gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't stop doing that even when the enemy amasses against us. We don't stop and hide. We keep going. We trust him. We trust his promises that no weapon formed against us shall prosper, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, and that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from his love. So we go forward as soldiers doing the bidding of our captain and our king. Our task is to endure 
And we have to endure because we're going to face tribulation. Remember, he told us, if you want to follow me, you're going to come and you're going to follow me on that dangerous and narrow path. But it leads to life. It's dangerous and narrow. We're going to face trials. We're going to face tribulations. We're going to face lies and slander and everything else. But we do it with faith in him and with the patience that he provides. We must stay awake. We must remain dressed for action because he may come at any moment. So stay clothed with the word of God. Keep your hope fixed on the gospel of Jesus and the righteousness that he covers his people with. Our hope is not in us, it's in him. But then there's one, one more verse to kind of round out this scene. After that little parenthetical reminder from Christ that he is coming, we see this final verse completes the picture of the sixth bowl. And it tells us that all of the rulers of the world, all the kings of the whole earth, will be assembled for battle at the place called Armageddon. Now, as you begin to study the Revelation, there are just themes and there are phrases and there are terms that just come to mind, right? And Armageddon is one of them, right? What is this going to be? We would understand this to be the battle of Armageddon, right? And that's exactly what it is. It's a picture of battle. But what is this place, Armageddon? Now, it's really odd in the the whole scope of Scripture. And it's odd because in the Old Testament, We actually do have Old Testament prophets that foretell this great day of the Lord, this great battle that is coming in the end, but it is never taking place in Megiddo, ever. It takes place in Jerusalem, or it takes place in Mount Zion, which is a reference to the place where the people of God dwell. There's never a reference to Armageddon. In fact, this is the only reference in all of Scripture to this strange location. And so we have to try to understand what does this word mean? What does the word Armageddon mean? And some of you may have studied this over the years, and you know that there's, there's a problem with the whole interpretation of the word itself. There's really two options when it comes to interpreting the word. Um, you can refer to it as the mountain of Megiddo, which is to, to interpret the word, I'll just give it to you in, in letters, A-R would be the, the way it starts. So it's, it's a combination of two words. There's, there's a Megiddo, which is a reference to a city, and then there's this little thing that's stuck on the front of it. A-R Megiddo. Well, A-R would be interpreted as a mountain, the mountain of Megiddo. If you do it that way, then you would interpret this passage to be referring to the mountain of Megiddo. But there's a problem. There is no mountain in Megiddo. Was John just mistaken? I don't think so. But there is no mountain there. There's an actual city there, and the city is more like a valley. But that's, if you were to try to describe the valley of Megiddo, that's not how you would, you would spell it. And there's another option. Instead of just using the, the, the prefix A-R, you could use the prefix H-A-R. And if you do that, then you're actually referring to the city of Megiddo. That's, that's, what, that's what it would be. And this would make more sense. And the reason it would make more sense is because in Israel's history, and even in more more recent history, there have been battles fought at the city of Megiddo. Some of you may know this. After 
the nation of Israel was reinstituted as a nation, there was a six-day war. There was a series of wars between the Arab and the Israeli forces, and one of them took place in this very location, and it's referred to as the Six-Day War of 1967. And it's a very pivotal war in the whole fight. But, but let me just be honest with you. I'm not going to abandon my interpretive method here. I believe that what John is telling us, what he's showing us here, is not a, a literal location on the map. He's using something from Israel's past to symbolically represent what's going to happen in the future. There were battles fought in this location. One of them was fought in Judges chapter 5, and we can read about it in verses 19 through 21. And what we read about as we read that particular passage is that Israel was being attacked in this location. They were surrounded Get the imagery here. They were surrounded by pagan kings. These godless nations had surrounded the people of God, and God came in at the last moment in the place of Megiddo, and he defeated the enemies of his people. That's the picture of Judges chapter 5. And what I believe is happening is the the symbolic importance of this is that as the kings of the earth assemble against the people of God, no matter where it happens, we don't fear them, we trust the Lord. Because in the same way that he's rescued his people over and over and over again, in all of these these ways, he promises to rescue us in the end. Here's the point. As the people of God, surrounded by the enemy, seemingly without hope, Yahweh, the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, he has fought for his people to redeem and save them, and he will fight for us to redeem and save us. That's our hope. And that's the point of John's vision. Our hope is not in our power to fight against a worldly enemy. Our confidence is not found in the strength of our arms nor the number of our soldiers. Our confidence is in the Lord to fight for us and to protect us and to bring us home to heaven when the battle is over. So, that's a lot to chew on. There's a lot of big things happening here. And your interpretation and how you've been taught are Maybe a little bit differently than what I just taught. That's, that's fine. But what can we do? If, if this picture is true, what can we do? Well, Jesus actually tells us some of the things that we can do. Number one, real quickly, we need to understand that we are at war. Our brother Breck just last year taught a whole series on the armor of God, and he, he taught this point over and over and over again. We tend to think of spiritual warfare as those times in life when things get really bad, but in in actuality, every day is a day of warfare for us, a spiritual battle. And we don't fight against flesh and blood. We battle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this dark age. Our battle is ultimately with the spiritual forces of darkness that serve to motivate and drive the men of this world. We need to understand that. And the weapon of our enemy, number two, is deceptive words, worldly ideas, and false teaching. Our enemy is a liar. He's been lying since the beginning. Don't be surprised when his forces lie in order to attack us. And the way that we combat the lies of the enemy is that we fill our minds and our hearts and our lives with the truth of our captain. We we fill our minds with the truth of God's word. We hold on to his truth no matter what. And remember this, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ to vindicate his people and ultimately to save us from this sin-soaked world. And so we must stay awake. 
We must be dressed for action. We must prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives. We must prepare our children and we must be prepared as a church to stand faithful until the end. Whether we see that day or we close our eyes on this world and someone else sees that day, we stay faithful and prepared every single day. So I'll end with a verse from 1 Peter chapter 1 where we are told this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word, and we especially thank you for the ability to study it and to think deeply about it and, and hopefully prayerfully to apply it to our lives in meaningful ways that will not only reflect our trust in you, but also praise you as the God who reveals truth and sets us free by it. I thank you for this time of of teaching and, and worship and singing and all that's happened, and I pray that we would leave this place blessed and encouraged. I pray that we would leave this place prepared. Help us to be those, as trusting in your Son, we know that the day is imminent when he will come. And let us not waste our time. Let us not waste our time as we did before we were believers, but let us be faithful and diligent to make disciples, to grow, to root our hope and our hearts in you and in your truth. And I pray that you would protect us as a church just as you promised you would. Accomplish your purpose in us and through us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.